if you think about what death might have looked like a hundred years ago, it would have been somebody probably in their own home, maybe in the kitchen, being the warmest and most kind of social, busy area of the home. A good death would have had family very present, very much around, um, might have come through illness and probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of medical intervention and probably would have had faith. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Dr Liz Forbat is Professor of Palliative Care and Director of the Calvary Centre for Palliative Care. She's what you might call a death expert. She has an extensive track record in care of research, covering a range of areas, including palliative care, psycho-oncology, intellectual disability and dementia. Liz is also a family psychotherapist and brings the theories, methods and techniques from her clinical work to her research. She's thought hard about quality care, and living well to the very end. We're all going to die one day. So what can Liz teach us about how to have a good death? And what can an expert in palliative care teach us about living a good life? Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us how you came into palliative care. Uh, So the journey started quite a long time ago. Um, I was involved in health research for quite a long time. Um, having started out as a psychologist in the wards, in forensics and acute psychiatry, and then got really interested in research, so did a PhD around caregiving relationships. So that was really quite broad, so disability, intellectual disability, um, physical health and so on. And then from there, really got interested in dementia and ageing, and as part of ageing and dementia, around dying. So I was involved in dementia research for goodness, probably six years, something like that. Um, And then I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, quite out of the blue. Um, And that really, the the experience of that was really quite startling. And it made it really clear to me that um, going through health services as a patient feels really different to what it's like as a researcher, where there's not that um, particular kind of personal or familial kind of connection with it. So I'd I'd had that personal experience and recovered, and I'm very well now, Um, but it had really set something in motion for me about wanting to really get as involved as I could in changing things. And I think during my doctorate, I was really interested in ideas and theories and, um, you know, some very kind of quite intellectual pursuits, But, but the personal experience had turned me really quite around to, well, what can we do to shift services? What can we do to make this better for the individual with cancer or those people around them, including the healthcare professionals? Um, and so, by chance, I then saw a job advertised in a cancer research well, just, centre. Uh, uh, just before you go there, yeah. I, I, wanna, I don't want to leave this extraordinary experience of, of your, your own diagnosis. Did you think at some stage that it might be terminal? Did you... What, uh, how... 
how serious was the cancer diagnosis? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. So um, I was told that I had this cancer, that there was a really good chance of survival, very high chance of survival, 95% is what I was told, I think, the day I was given the diagnosis. Um, but there was still part of my head thinking, well, what about the other 5%? Mm. 5% is big. I wouldn't drive home if you told me there's a 5% I wouldn't make it. <laughs> so, so it's really interesting because people use statistics in healthcare to be reassuring, but actually without saying, well, actually, you know, it's these kind of people that fall into the 5% or these that fall into the 95%. So even though the clinician delivering the diagnosis was trying to be very worrying, I still held that worry and that concern in my head. Um, and all of this collided with my 30th birthday. So um, there was something kind of a bit more existential and a bit more, um, a bit more of a kind of awareness about my own mortality and so on, hitting a kind of milestone, albeit an early milestone birthday, but, but having that kind of foisted on me. So I did at that point think, huh, might this be it? And it sounds like that forced you to think more about emotional intelligence than about kind of the, the raw... Uh, I guess, computing power kind of intelligence, which, uh, which seems to characterise so much academic research. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it's that balance that's needed mm. to bring health services back round so it's not there for the health service and for the hospital to operate in the way that it wants to, but to really think about, well, who are these people that we're supporting here? So did, you, did your research allow you to spend a lot of time with palliative care patients? Yeah, so um, it, it's really varied a lot. Um, a lot of my research is qualitative, so I'm really interested in interviews, focus groups, those kind of things, and then some trials where we implement something new and then go and ask people about it. So, yeah, lots, lots of people. Um, Paediatric palliative care, um, so some interviews with young children, but often they weren't well enough to talk to us, so then talking with their siblings and their parents right through to much older age groups, so currently doing some work around residential aged care and people in nursing homes. So it feels like you're drawn to the things that most of the rest of us are running a million miles from. Uh, terminal illnesses in children, dementia, these are things most of us don't want to talk about. Yeah, I think that's right. What's drawing you in? I think to a certain extent, because I feel like that's a safe territory for me. Like, I feel like I can look after myself in that setting. It's not personally threatening or challenging. So I can talk with people who are near end of life or are a caregiver for somebody near end of life and that that's okay. I can contain that for me and I can contain it for them. And that it's, I think, a, a bit of a privilege to be able to spend those times and to hear stories from people at such a vulnerable and difficult point in life. So I asked this in an earlier episode of the Good Life podcast of Nikki Johnson, who uh, of Claire Holland House, who introduced us. Uh, what makes, say, a good death? Well, there's a lot of different ways of answering that. So if you think about where we are today in time and place, that's a really different answer than it would have been 50 or 100 years ago. So if you think about what death might have looked like 100 years ago, it would have been somebody probably in their own home, maybe in the kitchen, 
being the warmest and most kind of social, busy area of the home. Mm. A good death would have had family very present, very much around, um, might have come through illness and probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of medical intervention. Nowadays, oh, and probably would have had faith, some sort mm. of God, some sort of um, belief system around that, and probably a belief system about what happened after death. It does sound very good when you put it that way. <laughs> Dy- dying in the kitchen, in, the, in a warm, warm part of the house, surrounded by family members and uh, everyone sharing the same spiritual values. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've come through all sorts of different social, economic changes um, through those past hundred years where actually some of those values we're still trying to hold on to but actually things have shifted so now often death involves visits to hospital not always absolutely necessary visits to hospital Mm. Um, secularization as we know you know people have lost faith and their relationship with God increasingly over the years Um, and I think there's also much more of an expectation that medicine can fix things. So an idea that a good death is one which has been pushed as far back as possible and is medically managed Mm. um, and that death might be somehow a failure rather than inevitable. So so that, that question about what makes for a good death is really contingent on where you are what your income is, Mm. what country you're in, and what time you're living in. So most of us don't want to die in hospital, and most of us do. Why is that? Uh, Well, I'd like to contest... Oh, sure. You're the the, the expert. If I got my numbers wrong, then uh, let me know. Well, no, so there there is a number out there. People often quote 70% as being the uh, proportion of people that would like to die in their own homes, and the proportion of people dying in hospital is very high. and I think that's correct to some extent. But actually, when you talk to people who are really approaching their end of life, maybe mm. the last six months of life, and maybe have quite a symptomatic experience, you know, they've got lots of symptoms that they're living with, or the caregiver family member is, their belief system often changes. Right. So that idea that you might want to die at home often changes as people get closer to that end point. So, so that, that there is that kind of element to have a think about, but, but why are people dying more in hospitals? Oh, it's, a, it's a raft of factors, so part of it is because um, a kind of holding on to the idea that maybe it's not quite now is the time and we're not quite ready, and maybe if we just do one more thing. We hear a lot of stories in specialist palliative care and in the research about people who are very, very ill and very elderly, very frail and lots of different um, symptoms. So maybe somebody's got um, cancer that's spread and they might also have um, complicated diabetes. They might also have heart problems, all of these things. They might be in their mid-90s, early 90s and still, um, if their heart stops, there's an expectation that somebody's going to come and give CPR Mm. and that if only we can shock this person enough times and get them to hospital fast enough that we might give them another, I don't know, a few months or a year or something. So I think people Mm. die in hospital because there's not enough thought and planning in place to give people the chance to really think, well, actually, what are the risks here and what's the likely outcome? 
Just remember when he was aged care minister, Mark Butler would tell this story of the guy who came up to him in one of his community forums, opened his shirt to show his DNR tattoo on the front, do not resuscitate, and then kept on taking it off to show in the back a, a please turn over tattoo on his back. <laughs> but I wanted to delve into some of the individual cases. Can you tell us about uh, people who you've spent time with for whom you, you felt that the, the experience at the end was was a good one? Yeah, so I guess it, it's quite varied. Um, we've done some research in bereavement where people have talked about um, the opportunity to be close to their relative, you know, in the room or close by has been mm. really powerful for them. So that goes back to that good death from 100 years ago about having family yes. close by. And, yeah, having the ability to kind of get your plans in place so often what we're finding through the research is people saying well actually if I can get down on paper what my thoughts and what my desires are for, for my care then that gives everybody a much better experience. And what would what would a good death look like for you? Um, I've really only thought of this in joke terms. <laughs> And that might be just to have a hitman come and just take me out as a surprise at some point. So maybe if I get some sort of very serious diagnosis, that that's what I'll be looking at. I think, though, in seriousness, I think um, I probably wouldn't want to die at home. I would be concerned mm. about what that would be like for my family around me. I would be concerned, actually, about what meaning that would give to the household and the home. Um, so I think... Well, that's interesting. So dying at home means the family, family might have to sell the house. It might do. It might do. Or, or on the other flip side of that, I've worked with a woman who um, couldn't move house because the person had died there. Right. And actually, how could you then? That's like a, a layer of um, problematic attachment and mm. you know commitment. And does that mean you're leaving your spouse if you sell the family home where they had passed away? So there's there's so many complexities around that. So maybe. I guess if, if I have enough warning for my, for my own death, um, then I'd want to talk to my family about that. Yes. Um, but yeah. probably I'd probably be in hospital or maybe in specialist palliative care. So we were talking uh, before we uh, started today's event about uh, a family where uh, there had been some trauma and uh, uh, involved uh, uh, a woman, her adult son, can you talk through how the experience of palliative care helped them address some of those trauma issues? Yeah, so this is a family that I was seeing as a therapist a few years ago. And as you say, so there was uh, the mother who was in her 70s and had um, very extensive cancer and probably had a month, maybe six weeks or so left of her life. Very difficult to predict that, but thereabouts. Um, and an adult son that lived with her and, and another son that lived outside of the house. And there was this family history of trauma and of abuse within the family. So I was called in to, to see the family, to fix it, so that she could right the wrongs and have a peaceful death, having put all of those pieces back in place. So it's incredibly complex work, very emotional, because even though somebody might be dying, we refer to people as loved ones, but they might just be relatives and not loved ones. <laughs> um, so, yeah, trying to sit with um, the mother and son and to hear a bit about what they wanted to 
not even what they wanted to say to each other in the here and now, but how they might even want to talk with each other because their relationship had broken down to such an extent that even getting two people in the room where one really has so little time left yes. is so difficult. So some of these sessions, um, I would be in the living room. I'd go out to their homes because they weren't well enough to travel to me. I'd be in the living room with mum and the son would be kind of in the hallway not wanting to commit enough to come in, but would participate from just beyond the door threshold. And that's, that's what we could do. Like the relationship was so eroded and so difficult. But that's what we managed. And eventually we got him into the room. We, he got himself in the room. Um, and we could start to do some of that work around talking about, not the trauma. People don't want to necessarily go through the nuts and bolts of who said what and who did what to whom but thinking about what did they want and what kind of legacy might they want for how they looked at each other in their relationship. It sounds enormously satisfying from a professional level to have managed to, to get the young man into the room before it was too late. Yeah, and it's a lovely balance to the research where you, know, you might spend, where well, I've certainly spent 10 or 15 years pursuing something, trying to effect mm. a change mm. in a hospital or in a service, Whereas I can sit in a room with somebody and 50 minutes later, you can see some sort of shift and maybe a light go on somewhere. So very perceptive members of the audience will have uh, picked up on the fact you don't have an Australian accent. So uh, how is palliative care different in uh, your work in Britain and, and Australia? What are the, what's, what's, Austro what's Australian about the way in which we do palliative care? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think there's probably more similarities and differences, actually. Um, and if you look at the world rankings, uh, the UK comes number one, um, but Australia comes very, very close second, and we've got a lot in, in so common. so modestly said. Oh. <laughs> um, so, you know, what makes for good palliative care in both countries is that you've got um, free access mm. to it. There's no cost attached to, to accessing the services. Good access to opiates for pain relief. So that's another huge marker. Um, more of a community about talking about death and dying. We've still got a bit of death-denying society. It's probably more dying-denying. Everybody recognising death now, yes. but a dying-denying society. So we both countries kind of hold that kind of perspective. Australia, I think, might tip the balance a bit in as much as there are... Um, national standards for palliative care and we know having good national standards and strategy help a country and Scotland which is where I was working before doesn't quite have those so we need to push them further towards Australia's expertise yes uh, what do you need to do for yourself after being in a palliative care environment is there something that's that you need to do in order to maintain your own mental well-being um, I think as a team, we really pull together. Um, the teams are wonderful and slightly bonkers. And I think it's that balance between really passionate and having a lot of releases through ridiculous humour or pranks on each other and mm. that kind of stuff really just helps us bond as a team and, and stay together. So I think there's a lot in how the team supports each other and gives each other scope to kind of debrief and to relax into that. It's really serious work but we don't have to be serious ourselves in order to give people the best care or the best research. 
And you're the mum of uh, four-year-old twins. Uh, how does it change you as, as a mum to have spent a day with, uh, in a palliative care facility rather than in a, a more normal office job? Yeah, well, it means... How do you parent differently? I think probably I talk about death and dying a lot with the mm. children in a way that I would probably be quite scared of doing if I hadn't had that professional experience. So... Um, yeah, it comes up all the time, and if they want to talk about a dead animal or a dead person, then we go with it. Like, there's there's no um, embargo on that. We just fly with it. So we were looking after somebody's pets recently when they went on holiday for budgies, and um, I had a conversation, being good advanced care planning people, we had, had a conversation in advance about what would happen if one of these budgies became seriously <laughs> unwell, um, so and the decision was that we wouldn't um, we wouldn't seek extraordinary medical measures to keep right, the budgie right. alive. Anyway, as as chance would have it, um, there was a murder. Wow, you're a hitman. <laughs> oh, maybe that's what it was. I blame the possums, but anyway, so one of these poor budgies perished in the night. Um, and, my little girl came downstairs and was very excited at the sight of a dead yellow budgie on the bottom of the cage and then put it in a sandwich bag so that she could walk around the house with it. It was, had a lot of blood on it, so hence the need for protective layering. Um, so it was then wandering around the house. Now, they go to daycare where they, um, once a week, they can do news and bring in something hmm. interesting from home. And it happened to be their news day. <laughs> So we nearly packed her off to daycare with this poor dead budgie, but but we didn't because <laughs> thought I might be judged by the other parents. But but what that meant was it would have done, and that's okay. You know, it's okay. Four-year-olds are naturally very curious about yeah. death and dying. So Your we have Monty Python skit just over there and there. That's it, dead, and you wouldn't believe the number of people that have got dead budgie stories. Actually, mm. so um, yeah. So I think it changes my parenting that I'm really okay just talking with that going with it and if they've got questions then that's that's all okay and what about uh priorities how does it shift your when when you're spending time with people who are uh, looking back over their life uh do you does, does that then sort of focus your mind in terms of what you want to do do, do, do with the kids yeah it does and i think it, it has to shift your own kind of balances and priorities with your own life so I think my kids are both very well that they don't have any serious illnesses so it's really easy to just kind of fly with that mm. um, I've done research around pediatric palliative care where parents aren't so lucky and they are having to think about how they're going to make the most for their child and buckets lists for their children um, I met one young man um, who's who was prolific on Twitter, um, had a lot of um, physical impairments, um, but was was uh, really, really engaged um, socially in all sorts of ways. Um, and he died very young. He was a teenager when he died. And his, his mum and I knew each other because she helped out on some of our research projects with him to give us advice on how best to conduct our palliative care research. Um, so I think she was much more in a position of thinking about how can she really enable him to live his life to mm, the best mm. and she's carried on his legacy because he worked so hard to improve pediatric services and she's yeah she's just carrying on that work and me bringing him he's called adam 
by bringing him into this podcast, I can see his legacy going too, because now you all know about him. Yes. Um, did a lot of work on sepsis, for example, just trying to get people's clinicians to be much more aware of it. And do you have a, uh, a bucket list, there, a set of things that, uh, that you're quite focused on doing? My sense is sometimes people only think often when they're not physically up to travelling to Machu Picchu, that that's really on their bucket, bucket list. Uh, are there things that you're conscious of uh, wanting to do now in order to, to live the, the full life that you'll look back on with a sense of pride? Yeah, so I've, I've often got things on my mind that I want to do. It's not usually a list. At the minute, I've got three things. Um, so those are... I'd, I'd love to see a, a sheep give birth. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be involved in that that process, even if, if as, as an observer. I would love to learn how to do a backflip, and I'm not sure, not sure that's ever going to happen. But you never know. Yep. And the third thing is that I really I've got a book that I want to write in the next few years, so I want to manage those those maybe two of those three things um, in the next wee while. But I think it's really good. Maybe not. A book about backflip and a birth. That seems uh, that seems doable. That works, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think it's nice to have at least one thing that you're working towards, yes. something to, to strive towards. Well, what do people normally talk about in terms of what they, what they want at the end? Does money come up very often? Um, do you know, it, it doesn't often in the work I do. I'm usually asking them about their relationships. Yes. Um, as a psychologist, that's my main interest and passion. We do talk about and done research on um, uh, work, and rehabilitation to return to work. But usually that's about people's sense of identity. So yeah, the money when you're very ill and maybe don't have a lot of social welfare around you is, is helpful. But really what it comes down to at the end is how people feel about themselves and what they've done with and to and for other people. Mm. What, what advice would you give to somebody who was caring for a person who suddenly discovered they had a terminal illness? Um, so I've, I've lots of things that I've learned through the research. I'm hesitating a bit because I've never been in that position myself and I think it's maybe a bit arrogant to say that a researcher would know as much as somebody that had actually done that role themselves. But the research... It tells us that getting a community is important, so meeting with and talking with other carers mm. that have been in that position is important. Um, and to maybe be a bit tentative about taking on the position of carer. So lots of people will say, I'm not a carer, mm. I'm his wife, or whatever. Um, so to balance, have a foot in both camps, to allow yourself to be a carer if you need to, but also to maintain your own identity or the relationship identity really strongly too. Um, I've done a lot of research around trying to support carers and educate them so that they're stronger, better equipped to go into the caregiving role. So I'd probably encourage them to have a think about what kind of resources they might need for themselves to engage as strongly as they can um, to do the best they can for the person they're looking after. And there's this sort of phenomenon sometimes with carers, isn't there, where after the person dies, then they've if they've given given it that they're all there's a there's a real loss of identity yeah. yeah and I think that's that's a big risk there's a lot of newer kind of theories in bereavement work where 
really trying to encourage people to avoid getting into that situation and getting them to kind of project forward beyond the bereavement mm. to give themselves links in both camps. So to be in the here and now looking after somebody, but to free themselves up to think about what life might be like after. So people to call it, talk about that or call that dual processing so that you've got, you know, that kind of both elements able to track along at the same time. Yes. And I'm curious too, your work on dementia, uh, that, that sort of hardest of, of conditions in that uh, there's, there's the loss of the memories that, that shape so much who we, who we are. Um, think about that, uh, that scene in Ian McEwan's novel, Saturday, where the neurosurgeon goes to, uh, to, to visit his mum who has uh, quite severe dementia uh, and his way he's discovered that he can change her mood by laughing midway through the conversation and saying, oh, mum, that's a terrific joke. Um, and she can't remember that she hasn't told a joke and so will often laugh along and then, uh, then, then the, uh, the mood lightens. Um, but also his sense that while he chooses to stay for an hour every Saturday, uh, in practice he could stay for five minutes and, and she wouldn't know the difference. Um, do you have tips for people whose loved ones are, are experiencing dementia and how to be a good carer in that context? Um, I read a quote recently which I think is quite powerful, which is, if you met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that everybody's so unique. Um, so I think it is about balancing um, what their interests were when they were able to be actively engaged in things physically or cognitively and to bring that into it but there's also this idea psychologists have written about this where it's not all just reminiscence it's not just all about who who you used to be because mm. actually they still are um, but also about bringing people to the here and now so I guess really positive dementia care also engages people in your current experience that might be are you comfortable in your seat have we got fragrances around that that bring you joy or comfort mm. and that might be mm. cut grass or your wife's um, perfume or something so it's really I think for caregivers I would say just uh, attend to and hold with great respect the individual that's sitting with you and to bring them something in the here and now that they can enjoy Yes. Yes, and I suppose it's having that philosophy that all of us are in a cosmic sense on the planet for a very short period of time, the uh, Big Bangs 14 billion years ago and uh, 70, 80, 90 years, and that, uh, that, that spectrum is, uh, is a blink of the eye. Yeah. Um, so to have that philosophy of thinking about living for the now. Yeah, yeah. There's also a bit of a kind of catchphrase in palliative care about not asking somebody, what's the matter with you, mm. but what matters to you? That's a really nice one. Yeah, yeah just yeah. flip it around. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Liz, let me uh, finish with a set of standard questions that I always ask my podcast interviewees and then uh, throw it open for some questions from the audience. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, I would probably say have a bit more belief in yourself. <laughs> Um, I spent a lot of time in my school being told that I was thick and um, that I was, I was told that I should be turfed out various subjects for exam time because I would bring down the school's grades, you know, the published national grades. So um, 
and I believed that. I believed myself to be thick, and I think um, that's not true. I think I'm I'm all right. <laughs> I think my brain works well enough. Um, Why were you being told that? I mean, you're you're obviously uh, I mean, strong academically. What? Did the teacher have a chip on their shoulder? Were you in a very competitive school? Yeah, it was, a, it was a competitive school. I think out of a class of usually about 33 kids, there was me and two others, who I won't name, um, who were always competing for last place. Like, who would it be that would have to go home with the shameful report <laughs> to our parents? And somehow me and these two other kids um, always ended up in the bottom of it, and that casts you out as being a bit thick then. What? Um, does that shape how you think your, the schooling of your, uh, your, your boys should be? Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think teachers have a really hard job. I don't doubt that for a second, but I think there is something more than just can you learn in the way that the school is teaching them. Yes. Um, and having just a, a huge dose of, um, of empathy for them in whatever they're going through and just believing in them. And we're all different, good at different things, and I think I can already see that in them. What was it that got you that sense of self-belief? I left that school and went off somewhere else. It's, it's what you'd probably call like ATAR-type qualifications. So at 16, I left school, went somewhere else, and those people just kind of looked at me and went, oh, you're bright. And I thought, oh, okay then, <laughs> let's run <laughs> with that then. And so it was written, it was just two teachers, both psychology lecturers, oh, and a sociology one, who just responded to me as though that was true. There's a great, very old psychology study about um, where they'd gone into a classroom, IQ tested all of the kids, and then flipped the register. So all of the bright kids suddenly had very low scores and vice versa. Chucked in a new teacher who got this register with the marks and then just responded to them mm. as though that was true. And so I've always held that in my head and thought, it's really powerful those little messages that people get given. That's ne never leaving me. <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, that there's a really clear difference between right and wrong and good and bad and black and white. Um, I think my training as a family psychotherapist very much deals in all of the grey territory and thinking about how many different versions of everything there is um, and although you and I are both sitting here with other people we'll all take away different versions and different accounts of that and I think that's really powerful when you start to think about how that can impact on people's lives um, and how you engage with people so I used to work in forensics people on the whole that had either killed somebody else um, committed some sort of sex offence or set fire to things. And um, that was a really powerful experience of, of understanding their point of view, actually, where, where that had come from, what happened to lead them to that behaviour, which, told very starkly as a list of three offences, is very shocking, but actually starting to unpick that and to understand a bit more. So I think, yeah, for me, I no longer believe that right and wrong, black and white, good and bad, are really so very different. So the conclusion I can understand in the forensics experience sounds fascinating. I'm just, I'm really intrigued that you put the two of them together because uh, I would have thought if there's any area of your career that has clear right and wrongs, it's forensics where someone is guilty or, or innocent. Uh, but you saw the kind of 
crooked timber of humanity more in, in, that, in that job. Yeah, because I had the luxury of being a psychologist and not a lawmaker. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so sitting with somebody. So one of the very first people I saw um, clinically, I was very junior, so it was a consultant leading the conversation, but I was in there, I think mostly to shock me, um, was a 19-year-old woman who'd killed her baby. And I would have been 21 at the time. Um, and just hearing her talk about how that had happened and her kind of only lightly holding on to the idea that it was actually her that had done it. So there was, mm. she did have an awareness, she was present, she, was, um, she had enough mental health and well-being to recognise that. But, yeah, that experience that obviously murdering your child is bad, and I get that, I'm not, not saying it's not... But actually having some compassion for her and understanding the sequence of events that had led up to that mm. and the desperation mm. that people sometimes feel in their lives, what, whatever they're bringing to you as a psychologist. So all of that context, there's no meaning without context, right? Because murder in war is okay, yes. murder in other contexts isn't. So it's all about the context around that. And I think, you, you know, as soon as you put context in there, that strong polarity between right and wrong dissolves. For yourself, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, probably eating well. So, um, yeah, just really thoughtful about what I put into my body and um, fresh mangoes and fruits and salads and good vegetables and stuff. I think that enables me to feel like I'm that's my self-care if you mm. like I know a lot of people their comfort food is pizza or chips or a curry or whatever but for me it's it's very much about self-care and comforting myself through that do you uh do you enjoy get, get a pleasure from cooking I do yeah I do maybe the people eating it don't but I enjoy the process <laughs> <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures so I have been told that I need more vices because um, I don't drink a lot, I don't do drugs, I don't smoke, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I do watch a lot of junk TV. <laughs> so I don't know if you used to follow The Ghost Whisperer on TV. It was this terrible yes, series. Yes. Are you aware of it? Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, that idea that this ridiculously beautiful woman with long, glossy hair, size zero, five foot ten that communed with spirits and ghosts in order to solve crimes. That was, um, yes, my guilty pleasure of watching Ghost Whisperer for every season and every episode. Is there anything you're Netflix binging on at the moment? Oh, no, I've just finished. I'm looking for recommendations. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, the New Dynasty, I, I think, is, uh, is surprisingly good. Okay. <laughs> uh, when are you most happy? Um... Often when I'm cuddling with my kids, just calm, and there's a lot of great pleasure in just having snuggles um, and being out in the countryside. I love, I think Canberra is such a beautiful part of Australia, and I've mm. travelled all around, and I think there's probably nowhere more beautiful than the ACT, actually. So just being out in the hills, walking, smelling the gum trees, fantastic. Well, given that we're speaking on Canberra Day, it's, uh, it's uh, an apt observation. Uh, and, uh, and finally, Liz, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think um, every day I meet new people that help me rethink that. 
every day. So that might be people that I meet through the research or it might be a snatch of a conversation with somebody um, in a restaurant or something I overhear here and there. So I'm constantly kind of trying to keep alive to the idea that I can be growing and getting better and, and learning and sharing that with people. So I don't think there's any one person, it's everyone, everyone that I meet. It's that attitude of the openness to experience. That, yeah, 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 I guess so, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, I think, partly what we're here for, right? As you say, we're like a speck of dust in time, so we've got to learn and grow as much as we can. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or comment on Apple Podcasts. I'll also take this moment to let you know I've got a new book out called Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. It looks at how randomised trials are carried out on us every day by supermarkets, search engines, online dating sites, political parties and direct marketers, explores the ethical issues and looks at how these radical researchers are overturning conventional wisdom in medicine, politics, business, law enforcement and more. From shoulder surgery to Sesame Street, randomisters are shaping life as we know it. I'll be back next week with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.